Hey, welcome. We have tonight and three more Wednesdays to go, so we need to make some tracks to try to get through the workbook that we began two weeks ago. We didn't meet last week because of spring break, but now we've got tonight and these uh, three more weeks to try to get through 40, 40 lessons. We did eight of them, about eight of them, uh, in the first week together two weeks ago. So page 20 in your, in your book, and we'll make, uh, make as much haste as we're able tonight, but if you have questions as we go, then I'll do my best to entertain those. But just a reminder, since it's been two weeks, that this is Good Soil Evangelism, and the book that you have in your hand is called The Story of, of Hope. We spent several weeks looking at a methodology for sharing the good news, sharing the gospel with, with people. That methodology included trying to determine where somebody is in their understanding, where somebody is in their, in their worldview, so that you can then try to start in an appropriate place uh, for them, not start at a place that assumes knowledge that they don't have about the Bible, about God, about Jesus, those kinds of things. And so uh, in order to do that, you may remember we had the peel the onion back idea. You're, you're peeling it back to try to get to the core of somebody's, somebody's beliefs. And having done all of that, we came to the conclusion that for many people at least, not everybody of course, but many people in our culture, uh, there isn't a whole lot of understanding of the Bible. I mean, they, they may have heard about it, they may have heard of Jesus, but there isn't a whole lot of understanding. And so it's good to be able to start at the beginning then with, with most people. And that's what this book, The Story of Hope, that you have, uh, that you have is, is designed to do. When we say go back to the beginning, literally go back to in the beginning God, the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of the, the universe, and then move forward to show how the Bible lays groundwork for the coming of of Jesus, so that then by the time he comes on the scene, then people have an understanding as to why and what's expected for him to, to, to do, and then look at the New Testament to see, in fact, what he, what he did. So we saw uh, eight lessons so far, and I believe if you guys turn to page 20 and the banishment from Eden, it's been a couple of weeks, but does that ring a bell for you? Is that about where we, about where we were? Uh, okay. I don't, I don't hear too many objections, so I'll, uh, we'll, we'll go with that. Uh, but, you know, the first, um, the first eight of these lessons dealt with uh, the eternal God and the fact that God created the heavens and the earth, but then He created mankind uh, special among all of His creation. The thing that was special about humanity is that we are made in the image of God as opposed to every other creature that God made so that humanity has a God consciousness. Every human being has a consciousness of, of God. Every human being has an understanding that they are a creature of the, the Creator. And the Bible underscores that in places like Romans chapter 1 and Acts chapter 17 and Psalm number 19. But sin enters God's universe, beginning with, it appears from the biblical story, uh, the fall of Lucifer a good angel that determined to rival God for his throne. As a result, he fell from, from heaven. And that's the beginning of sin in the universe. But it's not the beginning of sin in, on earth or in the human race, but in the, the universe. In the human race and on earth, that happens when Lucifer, in the form of a serpent, comes and tempts uh, the first man and first woman, Adam and Eve, by saying, God has told you you cannot eat from this tree that's in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But Satan, the serpent, Lucifer says, you will not surely die. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like God yourself. And so God doesn't want any rival from you, and He's trying to hold back some joy and something good from you. That's good enough for Eve. It's apparently good enough for Adam because he's silent the whole time. It says that she ate from the fruit and gave some to her husband who was with her, but he's saying nothing. 
But then as you go forward in Scripture, this whole episode is called Adam's sin. So we men have been wondering about that for quite a while. How does this get blamed on us? I was just standing there minding my own business. Okay. But the minding my own business piece was actually a problem because he was actually supposed to lead his home. He was made to do that. So the silence of Adam contributed to the entire scenario. That's why when you come to the New Testament, you have a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and if you don't read that correctly, it can sound like women are inherently susceptible to being deceived. You've got to be very careful with that. And in history, there's been a lot of misogynistic kinds of views about women and, and all of that, and that's had horrible consequences. But uh, in fact, what Paul, who wrote that, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and he goes back to the garden in Adam and Eve, he's saying that God, he says there, God created Adam first and then Eve. And so he's reminding us that this was the order that I made. And part of this whole scenario of the fall of humanity includes a disruption of that order. So when he focuses then on Eve, it was Eve that was tempted and deceived and not Adam. It's not because she's particularly susceptible to it. It's because Adam wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. And so he's reminding us that we can't let that happen anymore. We can't let that happen in our relationships. We can't let that happen in our homes, in our churches, uh, in society, and, and so forth. That's the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2. So you have the beginning then of human sin. And as a result of human sin, God meets out the consequences. And in Genesis chapter 3, third chapter of your Bible, He gives consequences to the man, He gives consequences to the woman, He gives consequences to the serpent. And He says to, that one of the consequences is going to be death. Now, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. We saw that in the Bible there are three kinds of death. There is spiritual death, which is what Adam and Eve experienced on the day that they ate of the tree. Uh, death means separation in the Bible, and so they experienced the first kind of death, spiritual death, which is the separation of the individual from God. And then because of spiritual death, later they, fit, they uh, suffer physical death, which is also separation, separation of the spirit from the body. And then there's a third kind of death in the Bible called eternal death. That's the separation of the individual from God forever. So you've got, you've got spiritual death, you've got physical death, you've got eternal death, and it all comes because of, of sin. And God gives these judgments. One of them is that death is going to happen, but each player, each actor, the woman, the man, the serpent, all are given specific judgments by God. When He speaks to the, the serpent, God says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and and her seed, the seed of the woman. And you are going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. So in that, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, Genesis 3.15, God gives a first hope, a first glimmer of hope that this problem of sin is going to be solved. And it's going to be solved through the seed of the woman, through a human being, one who's going to come into the human race and crush the head of the the serpent. And uh, then uh, as a result now of this sin, they are separated from, separated from God. And because they're separated from God, they no longer enjoy the fellowship with God for which they were made, the relationship with God, the communion with God that apparently they enjoyed prior to sin. I say apparently because it says after they sinned, they hid. And then it says in Genesis chapter 3, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So they heard the sound, so apparently they know this sound. They're familiar with it. It's something that happened somewhat regularly, but now they're hiding. And they make fig leaves uh, for themselves to, to cover themselves. And uh, God later makes uh, another kind of another kind of covering for them. So if you look at if you look at page 19, did I say look at page 20? Look at page 19. And the provision of 
coverings. Yeah, thank you, Crystal. And here's what it, here's what it says. You see it says, read Genesis 3, 7 and uh, 3.21. So we're on page 19 in those books, page 19. And here's what Genesis 3.7 says. The eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. But then later in that chapter, it says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics, coverings of skin. And, and clothe them. So you see on page 19, you see the picture there. There's Adam and Eve looking at their new attire. <laughs> okay. How do I look? You look great. <laughs> and here's the question, uh, question B there. Look, at, at least, look for at least two differences between the manner in which Adam and Eve were clothed in verse 7, the way they were clothed in, uh, in verse 21. And hence... Who prepared the coverings and what kinds of coverings were, were used? So you guys see that? So what, what were they? Well, let me offer some thoughts on that. Uh, Adam and Eve prepared those initial coverings themselves out of fig leaves. From verse, verse 7, God prepared the garments in verse 21. And the coverings that Adam and Eve prepared with these fig leaves were sewed together. They would have been fragile and temporary. God provided garments of skin, which would have been much less fragile and would have lasted a longer period of time. So that then raises the true and false questions. You see, true or false, based upon what we know that God did for them, it seems that Adam and Eve's loss of innocence was permanent. True or, true or false. You know, God makes them more permanent coverings. So it appears that this shame, this guilt, is something that's going to go on. It's not something that's just for today. It's something that's going to go on. So it's true. And true or false, it appears that Adam and Eve's sin made it necessary for one or more innocent animals to be killed to provide these, these coverings. And that's probably true as well. Now, I say probably true because the passage doesn't actually say that God killed one or more animals. He could have just, he could have just created these coverings for them, just like He created everything else out of, out of nothing. But there are some good reasons to think that God probably did uh, sacrifice a first animal in order to provide these skins for, and coverings for Adam and Eve. Um, it was their sin that created the need for these coverings. That loss of innocence was the result of their sin. God had warned them that the penalty would be death, and the death of innocent animals would have been a stark object lesson to remind Adam and Eve of how their sin affected God's other creatures. And so in all likelihood, many believe, I tend to believe as well, that God sacrificed an animal here to create these, these skins as an object lesson for them, one that's going to move forward now in the, in the story of the Bible. Okay, now page 20. Then the banishment from, from Eden. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and, and evil. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim, angels, at the east of the garden and the flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of, of life. And so God said, the man has become like one of us to know good and, and evil. Now, we saw back on page, uh, page 12 in your workbook last time. Uh, we don't have a lot of time to review that, so if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, we got all the recordings on our website. But um, uh, we saw that them knowing uh, good and evil, Adam and Eve knowing good and evil, meant that they were going to know uh, evil 
by experience. They were now going to experience evil and its effects. Now, God knows evil, but never by experience, because God's never committed evil. God knows evil intellectually. They can, and they would have been much better off had they only known it intellectually as well, right? But now as a result of their sin, they know it by experience. And so that's what God is saying here now in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22. They become like one of us to, to know good and evil, but they not only know it intellectually, they know it by by experience. Therefore, as a result of that, God sent them, banished them from the garden. So you have the, the question there, true or false? Because they had eaten fruit from the forbidden tree, Adam and Eve now had knowledge of evil from personal experience. I just told you that. What's the answer? All right. Yay. Good. True. <laughs> And so how's that different from God's knowledge? God's never experienced evil, but God knows about it intellectually because He knows all things. So then there's the second half now of verse, verse 22. I skipped that, you may have noticed. It says, Lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live and live forever. So here's fact number one. Verses 23 and 24 tell us that God expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. Now, what Adam was supposed to do, he's going to go out of the garden. He's still going to have to till the ground, it says. That's what he was made to do, you remember? So his vocation didn't change, but his location did. In fact, number two, the second part of verse 22 reveals God's reason for doing this. And it is, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live, live forever. So here's the, here's the question on page uh, 20, page 20. Was this an act of God's judgment? He kicks them out of the garden, banishes them from the garden. Is this an act of God's judgment? It is, isn't it, in a, in a sense? I mean, this was the place they were made for, and now they won't, now they won't have access uh, to it. Uh, not, and it's, it was this pristine paradise in which they were originally placed, and now, as part of the, the punishment, there are going to be thorns, thistles. The, the earth itself is going to convulse. All of the kinds of environmental problems uh, that we have all resulted from this, this first human sin. So, yes, it is an act of, of God's judgment. But notice the next question. Was this also, in some way, a gracious act of God? How so? He says the reason is that I'm doing this is so that he won't put out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. There you go. That's good, yeah. That's Colleen, the theologian. There, okay. Thank you, Colleen. But now that's true. That's, that's, uh, that, that's true, that, that God is keeping them from remaining in this state forever because they are now in a sinful state. So it at least offers now the possibility that even though they are separated from God, they're banished from the garden, it's not necessarily forever. So you notice God still is giving these glimmers of hope as you go through, as you go through the, uh, the, the story here. There were two uh, special trees in the garden. There was the forbidden tree from which they ate, but God said there is the, the tree of life as well. And so this banishing is keeping them from that other special tree, the tree of life, so that they are not, uh, they are not in that uh, sinful state uh, eternally for, forever. And so it is, it is a gracious act on God's part. All right, so now if you go forward in the story of the Bible, sin has entered the human race. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, have been removed from uh, their garden paradise. They're sinful. They have kids. And now originates the phrase, some people's kids. <laughs> okay. Because now the progeny are going to be like their old man and their old lady. So Cain, Abel. Cain murders Abel. 
chapter 4 of the Bible, you have the first murder. You start to see this going south pretty quickly. By the time you get to chapter 6, just the sixth chapter of your Bible, God is saying that the thoughts and the intents of humanity's heart is only evil continually. And God says, I'm going to destroy humanity, the humanity that I've made. And that is page 21, the Great Flood. You guys see it? Is that what it is, page 21? All right, good. And the Ark of, of Noah. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have, have made them. The earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh, flesh, flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So what influenced God to send such a flood? With the exception of one family, the entire human race, mankind turned away from their creator, began to pursue their own sinful desires. God, whose very nature is holy, such that he is repulsed by sin, is deeply grieved by these actions and lifestyles. As the creator of all mankind, God certainly had the authority to stop this wickedness and violence and to punish all who participated in it. As the righteous and just judge of the world He created, God did exactly what was right and what was fair. People flagrantly defied Him and broke His laws. So after years of restraint, God pronounced and executed judgment upon this wicked generation. This is when this happens at least 1,500 years after the original creation. So it wasn't as though God gave them a couple weeks to get it together. <laughs> okay. This is at least 1,500 years. And then God destroys the world, and eight people survive. Noah, his wife, Noah's three sons, and their wives. And that's, that's it. So God says, in effect, let's start over. And you get this clue that we're starting over because in the commands that God gives to Noah after the flood and after the waters recede, and they're now going to emerge from that 40 days in the ark, uh, God says to, to Noah something very similar that He said to Adam originally. Go, be fruitful and multiply. So here's Noah now and God with humanity saying, you know, maybe that was just a bad batch <laughs> that we started with. And of course, God knew that the same nature is going to follow them. But God is showing that in painstaking detail that the problem is the nature of humanity. This is what sin does. And so he starts over with, you know, everybody's become corrupt. All right, let's start with, with eight uh, more and then, see, and then see what happens. So in your, in your notes, what influenced God to do that? Well, it was because of how great the sin was. But then you've got... Um, how did Noah differ from the other people? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. He walked with God. He begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, so what's the difference between Noah and everybody else? Well, Noah is not living like everybody else. Noah, the thoughts and intents of Noah's heart are not only evil continually. So uh, why is that? Why is it that Noah, you know, out of all of the, the people who exist on, throughout the earth at this point, is the, is the only one that God singles out this, this way? Notice the first line there. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Sometimes we skip to the part where it says Noah walked with God, he was a just man, and you know, perfect in his generation, all that. We skip that. He found grace. <laughs> you see, the cause and effect there is God's grace. 
is what made Noah what he became. It's not, it's not, we usually reverse it. We, we say, oh, God was looking for somebody and he finally found a guy. And so as a result of that, God was good to him. Noah's good, so God will be good. And it's actually the opposite. God was good to Noah. As a result, Noah was good. And that's all, always the way it is throughout the Bible because the truth is Noah's got the same nature that Adam and Eve had. And everybody else, he's no better. He's better off, but he's no better. And by the way, that's true for you and me, too. So it should affect the way we see people, right? I'm not better. I come from the same stock. We all come from the same set of parents, all of us. We all have the same nature, and therefore we all need the same, the same solution. So... Read Genesis 6, 5 through 8, 22. That's, uh, that's too long. I'm just going to read part of it. Now the flood was on the earth for 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were, were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 years. 50 days, okay? So, uh, here's the, the question. You see, if we take the story at face value, does it appear that this was local or worldwide? I mean, it looks like it pretty much got everything, didn't it? It's a world, this is a worldwide flood, okay? Worldwide flood. And um, a worldwide flood and everything is destroyed except what's in the ark. And what's in the ark is Noah and his family and the animals that God told him to bring on so that they can then uh, replenish, the, replenish the earth. So how large was the, the ark? So where's all this happening first? You guys see up at the top there, you see the ark sitting on top of a mountain? That's Mount Ararat. That's in modern-day Turkey is where Ararat uh, is Let's see do we have there here you go make yourself an ark god told him make rooms cover it inside and outside with pitch now why are you gonna need we gotta waterproof this thing is what he, <laughs> is what he's saying and this is how you make it the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits it's width 50 height 30 you make a window for the ark you shall finish it to a cubit from uh, above and set the door of the ark in its side You'll make it with lower, second, and third decks. So God gives very explicit instructions. So how, how far, how big is this thing? It's 450 feet long. 450 feet long. So maybe think of a football field. That's 300 feet long, 100 yards. So it's a football field and a half long. It is 75 feet wide, and it is 45 feet high. It probably had the capacity of about 1,400,000 cubic feet, which is about equal to 522 standard livestock railroad cars. So over 500 railroad cars would fit onto this thing. That's how... That's how huge it was. So if you go to, anybody been to the Ark Encounter? And they built one to that, to that size. And then it's got the levels to it and the, and the whole bit. So sometimes people say, you know. I know, exactly. And so if people, people do say, how do you get all the, you know, how do you get all the animals on a, on a boat? Well, you don't get all the animals on, you get a two. <laughs> and you also don't take the biggest one with you, okay? <laughs> 
You know, you only need two who are able to reproduce, and you only need two of each kind. You know, you don't need every variation within the kinds. The variations then will happen, you know, as they, as they mate and as, they, as time goes on. And so there's plenty of room with, with space left over in the ark for all that the Bible says uh, happens. So from this story, what do we learn? Back to your notes here. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about humanity? What do we learn how, about humanity? Well, men and women are sinful, naturally inclined to all kinds of wicked behaviors, naturally rebellious against God and His laws. We often refuse to heed God's warnings of judgment and His gracious provision of forgiveness and blessings. But we also have the capacity, with God's help, to choose love and serve, uh, serve God as illustrated in the life of, of Noah. What do we see about God? God's holy. And as a result, He's moved to punish sin. He's just, He's fair in His judgment. He was patient and gracious to restrain His judgment for so long. He was the one who saved them from, from perishing. He's the one who warned Noah of the flood to come, gave him instructions for building the ark, and the one who closed the door of the ark prior to the beginning of the flood. Okay, so we learn a bunch about mankind, about ourselves, and about God in an episode like that. All right, so what's going to happen now in this story? Hopefully it's going to get better at some point. Nah. You know, the, the, the Noah flood story goes all the way through chapter 9 of Genesis. So you come to, you come to chapter 10... And God gives, a, God gives another genealogy. In chapter 5, He gave a genealogy. Number chapter 10, He gives a genealogy. Genealogies are, so so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, right? So this person, and they lived this long, and then they died. And what God is doing there is He's keeping track of the line, your seed and, and her seed. Remember that? Going back to God's keeping track of the seed now. And remember, there was just Noah and his three sons, Ham, Shem, Japheth. If you look at those genealogies, you're going to see that through one of those three sons, Shem, comes a special guy that we're going to learn about, that we're going to learn about next. Now, before we get to the special guy that comes through the line of Shem, uh, there's chapter 11 in Genesis. And that's the story of the Tower of Babel. Some of you know that story, but it is humanity, in effect, coming together and saying, God, we don't need you. That's what that chapter is about. So you had the flood. Now humanity starts to populate again, and going the natural direction humanity does, God, we don't need you. And so at Babel, God confounded their language and scattered them across the earth. That's His judgment. So you see this pattern beginning to emerge in your Bible, and you'll see it throughout your Bible. Here's the pattern. Those of you that are in my Sunday morning class, my second hour class, I said this this past week, that you see this pattern of God's grace. God gives something. He gives instructions, tells you what to do. Do what I tell you to do. Nobody will get hurt. Everything will be great. God's grace. But then what's God's grace met with invariably by humanity? Rebellion, sin. And then because of that, God reacts with what? Judgment. Now, if God just leaves it there in judgment, we're in a world of hurt. But God comes back to grace again. So He gave Adam and Eve grace. Adam and Eve sin. God judges. He gives grace, kills an animal. He doesn't confirm them in this uh, sinful state for eternity. And so He keeps them from the tree of, of life. And so he gives grace, but what happens? Man rebels. God judges in the flood. He gives grace again through, through Noah. What's humanity do? Rebel again. Tower of Babel. God judges. But now he's going to give grace yet again. And that is page 22 and the promises he makes to Abraham.
Many years after the flood, God called Abraham to be the father of a very large nation through whom all peoples of the earth would receive a special spiritual blessing. Top of page 22. So here's Genesis 11, 31-32. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarah, his son Abram's wife, and they went out from them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran, and they dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, why are, why are we going from Ur to Canaan? Because God appeared to this man, Abraham, and he said, Abraham, you're going to leave your country, and you're going to go to a land that I'm going to show you. That land turned out to be Canaan. We know it as the promised land. Modern name is Israel. And so Abram doesn't know where he's going, but God tells him this is where he's going to go. And with his family, he leaves. They go. His dad's name, his father's name is Terah, as you see there. And his father died before, before they, they got there. So if you hold your finger on page 22 and you go back to page 8, If you look over at page 9 in the map there, and page 9, right in the middle, it says Babylonia in big letters. Underneath where it says Babylonia, you see it says Ur? Right in the middle toward the bottom? That's where, Abram, that's where Abram's from. This is modern-day Iraq. And he is, he is leaving there, and he is going to go all the way to page 8. And you see the rectangular box there. That's Canaan or Israel. That's where Jerusalem, Jerusalem is. And if you look on page uh, 8 again, on the right side, near the comb binding <laughs> up at the top, it says Haran. You see that? That's how far Terah made it, the father and then he, he passed away. All right, back to, page, back to page 22. So he follow, they follow this route because this whole area that we saw there is called uh, the, the Fertile Crescent. So it's kind of a circuitous route. It wasn't you know, straight, straight across. But there's this area called the Fertile Crescent that uh, is easier for Terah and his son Abram to take with their herds, their, their cattle, all of that, because this is a wealthy family. And the Bible tells us they're taking all that stuff with them. So instead of going straight across the Arabian desert, which would have killed all of, would have killed everybody, they take this other route that takes longer, but it's because they're able to go through and uh, be fed and the animals are able to be fed and all of that. It's about 600 miles from Ur to, to Haran. Both the city of Ur and the city of Haran were known for idolatrous practice of moon worship. Terah's father, or excuse me, Abram's father Terah, was most likely a moon worshiper to the very end of his life. And that is probably why God didn't move Abram into Canaan until his idol-worshiping father passed away. Because there ain't going to be no idol-worshiping welcome in the land I'm going to, to set up for you. And so God says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family, from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So at the end of verse 3, there's one special promise to keep in mind. Since the promise that all families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's repeated several times in the Bible, it's obviously a very important point. So think about this now. How's that going to happen, that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through, through Abraham? We're going to see how that unfolds now later in the story. But just for now, Abraham 
And through Him is the means by which God is going to, in His grace, bless the, bless the earth. And then Abram departed as the Lord had spoken, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land, and then they came to the land of, of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar, an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So in verse 7, God makes this promise to Abram, To your offspring I'm going to give this land, Canaan, Israel. But there's a problem. The land already has Canaanites in it. We're going to explain later how all of that, how all of that turns out. And God says, it's going to be in your seed that all of the earth is, is going to be blessed. And later, God uh, is going to give uh, a son, a special son to Abram, through whom this blessing is going to come from Abram to his son and then on down. So that is on page 23, the offering of Isaac, page 23. God tested Abraham's faith by asking him to sacrifice Isaac, the son through whom spiritual blessings would come. But at the last moment, God provided a substitute sacrifice. So in Genesis chapter 22, where God tells Abram, now I want you to take this son, Isaac, that you have waited for. And I said through you, all the earth's going to be blessed. And there's going to be a people who are going to come through your descendants I give you this son, and now I'm telling you I want you to sacrifice him. Well, we have a dilemma now, don't we? And Abraham has a serious dilemma. So two obvious questions arise from Genesis chapter 22. Why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? And why did Abraham, did Abraham obey this unusual in, instruction? And so... Uh, the answers have something to do with what Abraham believed that God could and would do for him. So here's what happens. Let me see. Yeah, I'm not going to read all of that. Don't have time, sorry. But here's what, Abra here's what Abraham said. Hey, I'm going to go with Isaac. We're going to go up to Mount Moriah. And we're going to offer sacrifice. Now, he knows that God has said the sacrifice is going to be Isaac. Abraham knows that. Isaac doesn't know it. But Abraham said to his young men, stay here as we go up on the mountain. You guys stay here. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. Now, notice this. You guys see that last line? And we will come back to you. Huh, how does he know <laughs> that they're both going to come back? Because he's supposed to be going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. But he knows this isn't going to happen. This can't happen. God is not going to have me go through with this. God has made a promise that through this son, so something else has got to happen. And when you come to your New Testament... In Hebrews chapter 11, this is now in the New Testament. This is what it says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Meaning, hey, I'm doing, this doing what God told me to do. And this is the same God who told me to leave Ur and go to a land that I'll show you. And now this God is saying, this is what I want you to do. I do what God says. But I also know God's going to be true to His Word. And Isaac is going to be the seed through whom this is going to come. 
So if God has me go through with this, he's going to raise Isaac from the dead. And as it turned out, some of you know the story, he didn't have to go through with that anyway because God provided a substitute. Now notice this substitute idea then. Again, remember for Adam and Eve, God gives them skins and somebody else is killed, an animal, something else is killed on, on their behalf. And now an animal is sacrificed in, the, in Genesis 22 in the story of Abraham and, and Isaac. And so a Isaac later, preserved by God, had a special son named Jacob. All right, so just stay with me here. You only got 15 minutes to go, 14 minutes for those of you counting. Is it warm in here? It's not? Thank you. I'm warm. So I don't need any help putting people to sleep. And then the warm air doesn't help. So I'm going to take 10, of your 14, 10 seconds of your 14 minutes and like open up a window. Now what's going to happen is the wind's going to blow. That's going to rattle. Rubber band that's been here and it just broke. And it broke. So, so much for that. I guess. All right. Very good. What that means is you've got no excuse for falling asleep. We got 13 minutes now, okay? So Isaac has a son. So you, here's what you got. God says this, my solution to sin now is going to come through a human being, the seed of the woman. That goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Then God narrows it down to the line through whom it's going to come. It's going to come through a guy named Abraham. And then God says, it's going to come through you and specifically through Isaac, your son. Now, Abraham had another son named Ishmael, but he's not the guy. It's Isaac. And Isaac has a son. So you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac. Isaac has a son. He has more than one, but he has a son named Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's brother is his twin, Esau. And Esau turns out to be a bad guy. And Isaac turns out to be a good guy. I mean, all things being equal. So, remember with Noah, why was Noah a good guy? Because God was good to Noah, right? So now, why is Isaac going to be better than Esau? Why? It's the same reason. Because of God's grace to Isaac. It's not because Isaac's better than Esau. It's not because you're better than anybody else. It's because of God's grace to Isaac. And so God chooses Isaac. Uh, I said Isaac, Jacob, I'm sorry. God chooses Isaac instead of Ishmael. He chooses Jacob instead of Esau. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And Jacob's name is later changed to Israel. God changes his name to Israel. So he changes his name to, uh, to Israel. Jacob means schemer. So he needed a name change. <laughs> In Israel, the name means one who struggles with God. That's actually apt, isn't it? As you read through your Bible and you see what Israel does, it's constant struggling with, with God. But he change, changes Jacob's name to Israel. And Jacob, Israel, has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those sons is named Judah. Judah. 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons. One of them is Judah. Now, why, does this, why is this important? Because when Jacob, Israel, dies, he pronounces blessings upon his sons. He gives prophecies, predictions about what God is going to do with them. And for Judah, he says this in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. Genesis 49 and verse 10. He says that the ruler's rod, the scepter, will not depart from Judah. Judah is the one through whom the ruler is going to come. So now notice what God's done. You got the whole world, he narrows it down to a guy. Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob, and then through, through uh, Jacob's sons, he narrows down through Judah that this is the one through whom the ruler is going to, to come. And so we see that actually take place going forward. So take a look at how God does this, page 24. Top of page 24, after some of Abraham's descendants, that is the Israelites, became slaves in Egypt, God called Moses to lead them out of Egypt and into Canaan, the land God earlier promised to Abraham. All right, so very quickly, what's that about? How do they wind up in Egypt? Well, they wind up in Egypt uh, because a famine occurs in Canaan. And the place to get food, it turns out, is Egypt. Now, the reason Egypt is the place to get food is because you have to read the end part of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. But uh, one of the sons of Jacob, Israel, is Joseph. And Joseph is hated by his other brothers. And so they treacherously sell him into slavery. And they lie to their dad and they say he was killed by wild animals. And so Jacob thinks he's died. And Joseph is long gone. Joseph winds up in Egypt. In God's good providence, Joseph becomes like a right-hand man to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, because of his abilities to interpret dreams and all of that. He has wisdom and he has a dream that says there's going to be a famine come on the earth, and so we need to store up food. So they store up food, and when the famine comes, Egypt's the place that's got the food. So here you know, all these years later, people come to Egypt. Jacob, his dad, and his sons, the sons, they don't know what's ever come of Joseph. And then they get there and they realize, well, we're in trouble. We tried to just leave you for dead, and here you are with the food that we need. He's not going to give us any food. And at the end of the story, last chapter of the book of Genesis, he shows mercy to his brothers. And he says, you intended this for evil, but God meant it for good. Well, how does it work out for good? They wind up in Egypt. And... Over time, they ended up being the people, the descendants now of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, end up being enslaved in, in Egypt. They're enslaved for 400 years. And God calls a deliverer to get them out of slavery. And that deliverer, top of page 24, is Moses. God directed circumstances in Israel's family to place his son Joseph in Egypt as a prominent leader in order to prepare the way for Israel's family to follow. Exodus chapter 1. So now this is the second book of your, of your Bible. Okay, yeah, take my word for it. The scepter shall not depart. There it is. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who is Israel. You got the 12 sons, you got special son Jacob there through whom the ruler is going to come, right? All right, and then you got Moses. 
Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. And then it gives the 12 sons of, of Jacob. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to the people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they join our enemies and fight against us. So go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. And so now they are going to be oppressed, as I say, that goes on for, for 400 years. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with vigor, rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and in all matter of service in the field. And their service in which they made them serve was with, with rigor. All right, so they're enslaved. They are beating down on them, killing them, reducing their numbers so that they won't ever rise up against Egypt. And in God's providence, one of the people who uh, is there in Egypt is Moses. Now, Moses is a descendant of Abraham. But from a child, he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter found him. Uh, Pharaoh was killing the firstborn of, of Israel. Um, Moses' mother didn't want that to happen, so she puts him in a basket, puts him in the Nile, and prays that God will take care of him. And lo and behold, Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby, raises this baby so that he is raised in the palace of Egypt. He's raised as royalty as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It's not until later that he comes to realize that he himself is, a, is an Israelite. He sees how the Egyptians are treating the Israelites. He has compassion. At one point, he kills an Egyptian who is beating an Israelite. And as a result of that, he's chased out of Egypt, and he's just serving as a shepherd in a place called Midian. And at that point, here's what, uh, here's what the Bible says. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire. The bush was not consumed, though. Then Moses said, I'll now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look upon the Lord. The Lord said, I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land flowing with milk and honey to the place, oh, notice this, <laughs> we're going back to where Abraham, right? The Canaanites. But there are people who live there. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people out of Egypt. Moses said, uh, not me. <laughs> Who am I? So he said, God does, I will be with you. This shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say? God said, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. You shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. All right, here's what I want to tell you about that, and we'll be done. So God says this to, to, to Moses. Moses is reluctant. He goes, as we know, if you watch the movie, you know that. He went, right? He talks to Yul Brenner, and Yul Brenner lets them go, uh, ultimately. But he says, what is my name? And God says, I am. Now, what does that tell you about God? God has always been. God always will be. God was not created. He is the uncreated one. Further, notice that it says here in verse 15, the Lord God of your fathers. You guys see the word Lord there, L-O-R-D? But do you see that the letters are all capitalized? Here's why they're all capitalized. That's a translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh, which means I am. When you see the word Lord in your Old Testament in all caps, it's the I am name of God. And so you tell them that I am the self-existent one has, has done this. All right, and then we're going to see that indeed they come out and what God does with them in the, in the promised land from there, okay? All right, thanks for your... Thanks for your patience. To be continued.